Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This recording was taken on Wednesday 22nd of March 2017 and features David Cox, Head of Digital Publishing and Development at Taylor & Francis. David talks about meaningful metadata, granularity, analytics and how usage statistics inform commercial decisions in publishing. Thanks everyone. So I just wanted to say that uh, once upon a time I was also a postgrad student in publishing, so I remember having to drag myself in for lunchtime being in the rain to some guy who works in publishing, so well, thank you for coming along. Uh, yeah, I'm the director of innovation for books, whatever that means. I might get into a bit of that while we go, but basically it's an acknowledgement of the fact that in order to keep and stay competitive, uh, things we've already done might not be enough. Um, I'm in academic publishing. There are some realities to that changing business. Uh, it mixes B2B and B2C, so we sell to libraries as well as individuals. Uh, we're a funny mix of Taylor and Francis of science, technical and medical, and humanities, social sciences. Many of our rivals, such as I don't know, Elsevier or Springer, are very much in the uh, STM space. Uh, also, we mix 50-50 books and journals, whereas again, somewhere like Elsevier, Springer, Wiley, they're very much more journals focused. So that kind of presents its own challenges, I suppose, as well as opportunities. We are the biggest humanities and social sciences publisher uh, in the world, and we publish many things in publishing we made, and bought some of our insights in publishing on this course, or maybe not. Um, but yeah, we, wanna, we want to and we need to respond to change innovatively in order to stay successful. So I just want to start off with a bit of kind of macro stuff. This is a slide I use just to make sure I don't scare my colleagues. I say that although the things are quite tough, actually it's just weather. So it may be rainy today, but it may be sunny tomorrow. Um, but I had to catch up with the, um, the international sales team yesterday, who talked through the 2016 numbers. It takes this long to get them through and ratify them or whatever. And they talked around the world where there are challenges and opportunities, where we're up, where we're down. So like, we're up 30% in Japan, we're down in Nigeria. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of things, and many of these things you'll be aware of just by watching the telly. Uh, the weak pound after Brexit means our exports are cheaper. So it isn't necessarily a bad thing for a company that has a majority of its business outside of the UK. That's one thing. Um, but oil price fluctuations is a problem because oil-rich companies, countries, sorry, such as, well, anywhere in the Middle East, Nigeria in Africa, Malaysia that serves China, for example, they lost $40 on the barrel. Um, last year, which meant that their ordering went through the floor. We saw some big fluctuations there. We've seen some of our competitors transitioning from print to electronic by steeply discounting their print, down by 70% um, in order to force that migration, because they think that's a good thing for them. It's not necessarily a good thing for their customers. But that has led to some disastrous side effects. For example, Pearson, who are the biggest publisher in the world, had to uh, announce a $1.5 billion loss last year. Of course, it's bad for them, and I'm sorry for them, I used to work for Pearson, they're a good company, but it's not just bad for them, it's bad for the whole market because the city gets worried. And so we have to answer a lot of questions um, on behalf of the city analysts who are worried about that slump. Uh, it did affect our share price, we lost 40p that day. Um, there's also India, which is coming through as one of the BRIC countries that um, is, is definitely becoming preeminent maybe third after uh, the US and the UK. But the Prime Minister Modi, I don't know if you know this, but removed two banknotes from circulation 
in the last year. Uh, he did it for a number of reasons, not least of which only 2% of the 1 billion Indians in that country pay income tax. This is a cash-based economy. which removed those banknotes and it was chaos. Well, we thought they were going to announce a war with Pakistan, but in the end it turned out to be this. And either way, it was awful. We had a terrible year. It happened in November, and quite a lot of our business happened in December. Uh, and it, was, uh, it wiped us out. And lastly, uh, it, one of our competitors, Wiley, they saw their print business decline by 29% last year. So it is tough out there. So even when you manage decline, which is a hard uh, message to uh, massage when you're talking to your, um, uh, your parent company, everything is relative as well as absolute. It's tough. There's weather. Moving on. I want to talk to you a little bit about discoverability. I'm sure that it's coming up um, during your studies. Uh, the way I describe discoverability as opposed to findability is this quote, which I think is quite nice. I'll read it out. So discoverability is the process by which a book appears in front of you at a point where you were not looking for that specific title. It's incredibly important in academic publishing because you may well be set a task to look into uh, terror bombing during the Second World War, but you don't know that there's a seminal work there which isn't called terror bombing during the Second World War. But you might put terror bombing during the Second World War into Google typically, if not your library portal, and then you're going to have to filter through that and look for indicators to show that that book or those books or sources are the most uh, valuable and important to your studies. So I use the example of John Monson here. I don't know if any of you have read this book. Uh, it's an amazing book about the horrors of social media, which is one of my bugbears. But if you were looking for a book on the horrors of social media, you would not necessarily type in so you have been publicly shamed. So how do you find this book? The serendipity involved in discoverability relies on a number of things which the publisher does around metadata and SEO. So that's really what I want to talk about in the first part of this. And the second part, I want to talk, touch on the sort of innovation part of my job, in particular Agile, which I understand that you've been looking at. It's incredibly important that you're looking into Agile because all of the job adverts that you're going to end up reading before applying to get into publishing are going to mention Agile. So you're going to have to be sharp on that stuff. It's relatively simple, though, I would say. We regularly put surveys out into the market. And we're always asking fundamental questions and we're trying to figure out what that means for us as a business. Now, once upon a time, we printed books and put them into bookstores and we hoped for the best. And we spoke face-to-face -face with librarians and we asked them to put books on shelves and you know, those days are over. Uh, undeniably and extraordinarily, Google is the number one conversation we have as a business. We don't talk about Elsevier, Springer, OEP, CUP, whoever. We talk about Google. We talk about Google. We talk about Amazon in the retail um, channel. We talk a little bit about Apple. We talk a little bit about Microsoft, especially about Bill Gates because of his funding through his foundation. We're not necessarily, necessarily talking about our competitors. We're aware that we compete with our competitors in the Google search rankings when someone types in something like world politics in Google. So here you can see that somewhere between Google and Google Scholar, um, the vast majority of researchers are starting their research there. Not in the library, you may well, that may well um, resonate with you. There's something else going on as well, and this is um, uh, two images to indicate the way that librarians, which are the majority of our business, are changing the way they purchase any content from a publisher. There was a just-in-case model, so librarians would go out and as part of their mission they would spend the university's budget on books just in case the scholars at their institution would one day want to prevail upon that information. They'd stack their shelves and latterly they would stack their virtual shelves of ebooks with stuff just in case. 
those days are over. They're only now going to stop things just in time, i.e., if people actively look for and try and use something, a librarian will purchase it. It's a complete reversal. So if you can't be found in a search via Google, you won't be used, which means you won't be purchased. And if that's the majority of our business, that, that indicates something to do, that indicates the stakes we're playing with here. Our business will be wiped out if our content can't be found. It's not the case now that people buy it just in case, oh, that's from average, you might as well buy it. That doesn't happen anymore. How do you get found? So this actually is a, um, an image that I cut and pasted out of uh, the Oxford Index from um, OHP. There's a lot of information here. It's unbelievably dense with metadata. You've got the title, working down from the top left, you've got the title of the chapter, the, the uh, author of the chapter, the title of the book in which that chapter appears. You've got your print and online publication dates and you'll know they're different. You've got um, subject tags, which come from Vizac, presumably. You've got your DOI. You familiar with DOIs? So I need to explain what that is. Oh, good. You've got your abstract there, which is being written specifically for the chapter. And then you've got your clickable key keywords. So you can click on any of those things, such as strategic relationship, and it would rerun your search, um, returning all the results that have been tagged with British politics. The amount of work that's gone into this page is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And this is the value that we add now as publishers, because otherwise, why doesn't everyone self-publish? Because you can optimise your own content in regard to SEO, publish from Google, whatever, and you're done. But this is the reason why, because this takes a lot of work, a lot of expertise, a huge amount of money. Even if it only cost us $5 per chapter to do this, and it wouldn't it would cost a lot more, we have millions of chapters. So when do you spend that? How do you ever say, okay, start your parent company again, this year we're going to spend, I don't know, $35 million on getting our metadata right. But believe me, in 10 years' time, you'll thank us. And that's forget it. We need to report quarterly because we're a FTSE 100 company. This would be a profit warning. Forget it. No, I'm doing it. I want to talk something else here, which is alternative measures uh, of value. So are you familiar with Altmetric? So here's an Altmetric going up in one of our books. Love this stuff. So beyond usage, downloads, and citations, there are other measures of value for academic content, and they are captured by something called Altmetric, uh, which is a clever little thing made by a company called Digital Science. So I urge you to look into, they'll be a good employer for you when you come out of it. Um, I had a meeting with them yesterday, they're doing a lot of things that are much more interesting on behalf of academic publishing than academic publishers are doing, certainly. Here you can see that they're tracking where this piece of content published by Routledge has been mentioned. So it's been mentioned in the news outlets, it's in an article, it's been tweeted about, it's been uh, mentioned in Facebook pages, bus users, etc. Quite a lot of our politics books, we have a leading politics list, is used in policy papers, government policy papers. So that will turn up. In our economics lists, we're seeing patents come up. That's also captured by Metric. Not in this donut, but in other ones. Uh, are you familiar with the, I'm sorry for all these questions, but are you familiar with the REF? So Research Excellence Framework, that's coming up in 2020. Uh, the, that's a kind of a measurement of the academic value of a department and or institution um, that allows you to rank uh, institutions in terms of their research output, quality of research output. REF is increasingly going towards things like impact and influence as opposed to straight old number of citations. And so this stuff is becoming incredibly important and people will be mentioning your metric 
when they submit their papers for consideration to the next ref, that's for sure. This is something else we need to figure out. Like, how do we help our authors to help themselves? Because we can't astroturf this stuff. We can't just put out a thousand tweets from one of our app routage handles and hope for the best because all metrics are smarter than that. So we need to have this organically occur, but the best person at the centre of that network of people, if each published artefact is surrounded by a network of interested parties that the author themselves, their co-authors, the peer reviewers, the people they've cited, the people who go on to cite them, they all exist in a network and between those nodes, there are connections of varying strengths. If we can get the authors at the centre of that network to work on our behalf and on their behalf to um, uh, share their content and then have those people share it, because we really want our content read, that's as important to us as anything else, if not the most important thing for us. We, we want to publish good and authoritative stuff which is read and used and is found valuable. Um, then your metric scores will go up, and it's a very virtuous circle. The more it's Reference the more it's cited, the more it's used, the more it will get searched for, the more it will get referenced, the more it will get used. It's a very virtuous circle. I suppose that's a kind of my prefatory remarks to say that academic publishing is really changing. So, when I did my postgrad in 2001, I don't think I would have thought that I'd be standing here talking to your class saying that 70% of our sales are in print. Like we thought print would have gone by now. Oh, 100%. And those um, companies such as Pearson, who have forced migrated their market away from print into E, have suffered badly to the tune of 1.5 million billion, sorry, within one quarter. So people want print for some reason or another. I, I don't know if, I'm sure you read it, but there's an article in The Guardian even this week showing the research, not just the resilience, it's the resurgence of print. Print is growing again across publishing, whereas ebooks is declining. It's extraordinary. We can't really figure it out. We think we've got some kind of neuroscience ideas, which is that the uh, dense academic information is best absorbed over the short to medium term, read off a physical page. There's something about um, the disposability with regards to human brain of reading off a screen as opposed to a print page. But we don't know that for sure. We're gonna to have to have 30 years of studies to figure this stuff out. But in the meantime, uh, and we'll get to this in a bit, but if all you do is give your customers what they say they want, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. So if they want print, keep giving print. We're not going to try and force anyone in any one direction. It will only help us, and in the end it won't even help us. So discoverability in the usage-based economy, the idea of librarians ordering just in time, not just in case, will change. There are new measures of impact and value beyond just citations and usage and downloads into however preposterous it sounds, how many tweets there is with regards to a journal article or a book chapter. And that means that, and that's why my job exists, we need to think about a whole new approach because those things that we've always done will not be enough to keep us competitive and successful in the future. So that moves me on to this. You'll be aware of this, presumably, because of your work with Agile. Um, PDCA means plan, do, check, act. This idea, and we'll talk about it in a bit, this sort of loop, the lean loop. You propose a hypothesis, you run an experiment, you capture data from your real customers, you recheck your hypothesis and you iterate, you go again. Or you don't, you abandon, it's a bad idea, you found that out, good. Next one. Um, we're a big company, like I said, we're part of the FTSE 100 company, we're worth well over half a billion pounds. 
growing every year through acquisition and organically. Turning that stuff around is um, a massive challenge for us. It's a massive challenge for everyone in publishing, academic or otherwise. But the way to do it is this continuous experimentation. It's iterative approach. So this is the way I describe Agile to my colleagues. So, so forgive me, because you'll probably know this better than I will even. But um, uh, your customer is hiring your product or service to do something for them, to make their life easier or, or better. So the problem here is that I need to get to work quicker. So you could say, well, what you need is a car. And in the old ways, in pre-agile, in the waterfall ways, you go, okay, let's go out and let's try and buy a plot of land that's big enough to contain a car factory. Then once we've got the planning permission done, which is going to take about 18 months, let's start building the, the car factory. And then let's start sourcing the components for that car factory. And then about eight years later, you make a car. In the meantime, I'm walking to work. Whereas Agile, you can just give them a skateboard on day one, and they'll get to work twice as quick as they're already getting. But then you start to iterate, you make it into a scooter, you make it into a bicycle, and eventually you make it into a car. That's Agile, that's the best way I can describe it. That's why I love it. Because um, I can give people a skateboard within a week, but sometimes you slog away at eight year projects, of which we've had many, and you never get to give them a car, because by then you don't, the cars don't even exist. So, what is innovation? What is my job? What do I do every day? It's a question that not only I ask every day, but I am asked. Um, one thing to say is that I did English literature at university. So I graduated in 2000, sick of books, couldn't look at them. Um, but when I, I graduated and someone gave me the first three Harry Potter books, I was like, oh, forget it, I can't. I read them, I, read them. I, I got locked out of my house. So. <laughs> and so I had these three books in my bag and um, I sat down and I thought, okay, I'll read it. It was just, you know, it was a summer. Didn't put it down, couldn't put them down. I was like, man, I love reading again. And, um, and so I'm a big fan of Harry Potter for those reasons. And I don't know about the But anyway, it's not divination. Innovation is about guessing the future. It's not about that. It's not about reading tea leaves. It's not about gut instincts. It's none of those things. It's extrapolation. It's quantitatively improving the predictability of our business. And so we talk about, there are two different types of language here. There's a sort of more uh, kind of, I don't know, like Las vegas -y type of language around strategic bets. So you place a bet, you spin the wheel, let's see how we go. Or there's a slightly more kind of spiritually scientific um, set of language or set of terms around the scientific method. So you, you take the thing, you test the thing, you observe the results, you rerun the experiment according to your first round of finding. Either works. I think I prefer the scientific method just because I think it's I think it's great because science will find the same results over and over again as long as your methods are right. There's 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 no there's no gut feel to it, which is really important because uh, you're always fighting the power of the anecdote when someone goes, yeah, but I was on campus the other day and I heard this and suddenly that's all we're talking about. We're half a billion dollar, in, you know, half, half a billion pound industry. That's not good enough. There were two main categories. So I'm afraid to say that this is the, the bit in shampoo ad where you get like the science. But there's two main categories of innovation, convenience and quality. So taking from the innovative solution, you haven't made this book, you should read it. Um, you've got time on one axis and performance on another, right? The sustaining innovations, uh, if you choose a publishing example, textbooks. So back in 2001, I joined PSN Education. It was the high days 
of academic textbooks. Academic textbooks were going from being one colour to full colour. They were going from about 400 pages up to 1,000 pages. We were starting to do companion websites of each uh, uh, book and we started to invest in things like video and all sorts. The books went from 25 to 45 pounds within a couple of years. Because the sales were dropping, even then, but we had to keep making the, the margin. Now what happened there was, we went beyond what even our most demanding customers were asking for. But this is what you do. You continuously improve according to the feedback you're getting, but you tend to go towards the outliers as opposed to the middle. And say, in order to beat McGraw Hill on their intro to marketing book, we need to offer more and better, which makes the thing more expensive, which pushes the price up. And now you've got $60 pound textbooks full of stuff that no one wants. But this way has gone crazy. But then what happens is your least demanding customers are extremely overserved. There's no way they're going to go and buy that £60 book. So what do they do? Well, they find their own way. So the second-hand market exploded. That's one symptom of that. You've got ebook rental. And or you've got smart publishers who just go, why don't we just go back to publishing 300-page, one-colour books? Uh, or institutions, teachers, Lecturers might say, we can figure this out ourselves through open educational resources. We can just put something together and photocopy it and here you go. Those are the morbid symptoms of when you follow sustainable innovations too far, which is what publishing did. And that's why textbooks are in a lot of trouble. And that's why, sorry to keep going back to Paul Pearson, but that's why they lost one and a half billion dollars in one quarter. Because that's where they live. They live in the 101 textbook market and the, and the bottom has fallen out of it. And this is why. And with all their clever, um, extremely clever consultants that they must have spent a huge amount of money on. None of them told them this. And they should have done it, it would have saved a lot of money. And a lot of jobs, alas. Why innovate? So we have to acknowledge that times have changed and the realities for academic publishers are completely different to what they were even five years ago. This isn't to overstate it. We're not going to hell in a handcart. It's going to be fine. There's always going to be a need for there's an increasing need for reliable information in the era of fake news. I really do believe that. People want to know that the thing they're reading is real and rigorous from peer review, etc, etc. Um, but the times have changed, we need to change with the times. The skills that we've got in our business are not the same skills that you would want to have if you set up a publisher from scratch today. No one knows these issues better than our staff. You know, we have a huge number of entry-level uh, positions coming up all the time in the business it's where the, we have the highest number of people and we have the highest number of the highest amount of churn so people are coming straight out of university of higher education with direct experience who can tell us what we should be doing based on their very recent experience i can't overstate that enough because someone like me went to university 16 years ago or whatever, i've got a false assumption about what higher education is like which is not true, and I have to, I have to admit that and realise that every time I start saying, ah, yes, but when I was a student, that's preposterous. I didn't use the internet once. <laughs> it didn't exist. Like, I, I think email kind of existed. I was like, handwriting things, I was loving it. <laughs> but that's not appropriate. And we are saying to you, we do need to understand your challenges. If we don't understand your challenges, we don't listen to you, we will be in trouble. So, Talking to our staff and then prevailing upon the opinions and expertise of our external stakeholders, such as yourself or librarians or academics or whoever. Intelligence plus judgment plus determination equals a good starting point. When to innovate. 
Well, firstly, it's before it's too late. Many people think that they should start being innovative when their backs are already to the wall. It's like, well, this isn't working, so now let's change it. But we're okay within a tolerance. I mean, literally within a tolerance of half a percent, we're okay. Um, and so it isn't too late, and there are things that we can do. And there are small things we can do, and there are large things we can do. There are cultural things we can do, there are financial things we can do. There are things we can do today, and there are things that we need to do today in order to be able to do something in a year's time. There's a huge mix of things. It's not too late, but it could have been. It, it rapidly was going to be as well. So my job is an acknowledgement of the fact that we do need to change. It's also important that whatever you do gets the mandate of senior stakeholders, all the way up to including the CEO of the company. And so um, I'm running little teams, so co uh, across the business, uh, six people teams. There are three teams working parallel, they're working at the moment, um, on a set of hypotheses that they themselves have defined will get to this later. They're running experiments iteratively, gathering feedback from their colleagues where appropriate and from external stakeholders where appropriate. And then next Thursday, they're going to sit the MD of the books business and all of the directors and they're going to present their findings to them as recommendations and say, you need to change. That's how it should work. It should come from the bottom up, but it should be mandated, supported uh, and paid for by the senior management. Otherwise, you can come up with some brilliant ideas Bad ideas, probably, but um, you come up with brilliant ideas while you just sat there alone in a room and said, I think we should do more holograms. But then, um, and it sounds good, and maybe you'll make, you'll make like a company headline. No one's going to pay for it, there's no market for it, it looks good, um, but actually, some of these things are grindingly, blindingly obvious, but very important because they will shift things. So, across the three teams, each team has, three, has two hypotheses. So across that, there are nine hypotheses. If each one of those is only worth 0.1% of the value of our business, we will be absolutely fine this year. A 0.9 shift into the positive between now and the end of the year would save us. Well, it would make a good year great. So it doesn't have to be much, it's all cumulative. How to innovate. So I think I mentioned that um, people are the customer is hiring your product or service to get the job done. So my colleague uh, who helped me with this says, no one ever buys a, a six millimetre drill bit, they buy a six millimetre hole. And I think that's really, I kind of moan at him for that, but I think it's actually quite good and now I've started to use it, so he's trying. But it's <laughs> kind of true, you don't want a drill bit, you want a hole. So um, is your idea going to help someone solve something that they're already doing? Because the other thing is that, you know, Pearson's problem was they said, no one is saying they want uh, digital or electronic books, but we don't want to give them print anymore, so we're going to force ebooks on them and they're going to thank us for that later. And that was a big mistake, a huge mistake. So, what they actually, what's the job they're trying to get done? Now, this is the first bit of the algorithm. Is it better than the current solution? Because if you definitely can't say that they've, you've solved the problem for them, then you should stop right there. If, it, if it's better than the current solution, is it better enough because there are switching obstacles? So you've got a bunch of stuff in your lives that isn't optimal, but it's better than nothing, and to switch is a faff. It's like the gas bill or whatever. So is it enough of a benefit to you to go through the faff of a switchboard to change your gas bill every six months, which apparently you should, you should do? Many of us don't, but I always sit on those crap contracts. That's the switching barrier. Then, if it is better enough for the current solution, then can you do it competitively? I.e., is it going to cost you so much money to build this thing that we'll only ever make a loss? Because that's not the point. We're a commercial press and we need to get paid. 
And then finally, if you can say yes to all of those things, then you have, you're in a position to go to the next step. And so many people do not go through these stages and just think, oh, we'll figure that out later. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, some, some word in which I banned from my teams, I just said, don't ever say that to me. That's the worst thing I want to hear. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. No, we'll cross the bridge now. Because if we can't get the other side of the bridge, it's not worth spending any time on. This is the process the teams are going through. So the first stage is that you put a call out to all of your um, employees and you go, what are your best ideas? Get a ton of ideas in. Then what you do is you select the ones that you consider to be the best ones. Those people have already volunteered themselves implicitly and or explicitly by actually suggesting the thing in the first place. Then you recruit them into a team, right? You pair them up. You say you're going to have to self-organise around your hypothesis. So that means that someone in the Netherlands is now working with someone in Singapore. So there's his own challenges, but they're now invested in the idea because it was their idea in the first place. They have six weeks to test it. They're working together very intensely. We use Slack. I don't know how many of you use Slack. It's a great online team collaboration tool. Much better than email because these people are doing this on top of their day job as well. It's worth so this is when you get into the kind of lean loop, which I'll get to in a second. At the end of the six weeks, they make the recommendations, and then we have to turn their recommendations into outcomes. So you take a champion from each team, one person out of the six, and say, you're now going to turn this into outcomes. You're going to operationalize these recommendations. And then at the end of that, you go, this is brilliant. This is making a ton of money. You need to turn the volume up. Or, well, we tried it. It didn't quite work. And you go, but why back now? So you ask another bunch of ideas. It's no more or less than that. But this part, this first two part from ideation and explore, is basically a lean discovery process. Um, and it's already making huge, um, it's, make, it's delivering huge dividends for us to do. So this is how you go. So you say, give me your idea. So that's the relatively cheesy uh, telescope against the night sky. You can then tell you, I'm going into Google and images and just trying to find, you know, typing innovation is horrible into Google images. <laughs> So um, then you get your hypotheses, you get your three hypotheses and you have three options. You're going to keep going, which is persevere, as in kind of doubling down. So I've, I've found gold and I'm going to keep digging. Uh, I've tested it uh, and it's not working, so you stop straight away to drop it like it's hot. And then the other one is pivot. So I've got to a certain point, but actually it turns out that X hypothesis um, isn't holding true. If we changed it to Y, there's, I think there's something there, and you go again. But you need to make sure that you're based on a weekly cadence. And so you, uh, you build a survey, you measure with your customers, you learn from their feedback, and then you keep going over and over again, as many times in six weeks as you can. You'd be surprised how far you can get. Um, uh, I wanted to mention one of the teams that's working uh, in the innovation process this time around, who's going through this process. Um, this is another visualisation of it, so just moving on. So the vision at the top is we'll better serve our customers by responding innovatively to the changing nature of our markets. That's kind of the micro-predatory comments, you know, Nigeria, or otherwise. Then you break them down into your uh, kind of top-level hypotheses, which is if we engage differently and better with the corporate and professional markets, we'll make more money, which in that sentence. Then you get into your hypotheses. Now, in the new and extended markets hypothesis, one of the hypotheses was that having a better mechanism by which to offer content to scholars in the global south uh, would lead to a number of positive dividends, more usage, more sales, a more diverse author pool. That was a hypothesis. How do you go about testing that? And also, what, what things are buried within that? 
So for example, our pricing policies are Western oriented. The Global South can't afford our content, so that's something to consider. But then if you uh, locally price and steeply discount, there's a risk of grey market leakage back into your core market, so that's something to consider. Um, patchy internet. So if you're offering this stuff through your ebooks platform uh, and you're in Ghana um, and the internet is unreliable, how does that work? Also in Africa, typically, the internet is accessed through a mobile phone, not a laptop or tablet. So how does that affect things? Because is your platform mobile optimised? Um, we don't have enough content in the first place about the Global South to interest the Global South. So these are the things that started to get turned up as we went out to whatever Global South-based authors we had and asked them the question. And so now we're in a much more robust place to start making pretty bold recommendations about making all of our content completely open to the continent of Africa for a whole month and see what happens. Let's see what happens, what comes back, what they say, the issues that um, comes up for them in trying to access it that might embolden us to go further with our mobile optimization of our online platform. We want to just get the feedback and base our next decisions and next steps on that. So that's one of the that's one of nine of our hypotheses, but a relatively interesting one, I thought. Now, there you go. These are my tips when you're behaving innovatively. This should hold you in good stead um, in your day-to-day -day life. <laughs> it's particularly applicable to these uh, poor saps who have got six weeks and it's very intense and you have to present to the MD next week. Be iterative, it's the number one thing. Don't put one good survey out there to 300 people and hope for the best. I think that's going to be enough. You're much better to um, put a survey out there, uh, gather feedback within a week, either then recontact those people with another survey based on the findings in the first round, or go again with a completely different population of respondents. The more iterations you get, the better the results, because your first idea is never your best. That's the, that's the kind of fundamental assumption behind that. Be incremental. Don't think you have to jump straight to the solution. Far from it. You have to start with a, a sound hypothesis and then work towards that in increments. And finally, be independent. Don't let any of your progress be contingent upon anyone else outside of you and your team. Because what we ran into, if we've done this twice now, the first round, it was like, well, I'm still waiting to hear from sales. And it was week five. It's like, well, you've lost them. You've lost all of your momentum. You've got nothing to recommend. You need to keep going. A lot of people kind of within the business uh, say, oh, I'm working on something a bit like that. Oh, I'm planning to do something like that. So don't worry about that. And I've always made it a rule that unless they're talking in the present tense, as in, I'm doing that, or even in the past tense, I've done that, it's not admissible. If it's in the present tense, then fine. If it's in the future tense, uh, then you keep going and you ignore them. You just have to keep going. Innovation tip two. This is something that I really try and get across to the teams at the top. I don't know what they're about to turn up. I have no idea how we can better serve the needs of scholars in the global south. How would I? How would I? So why don't you just ask them, gather the feedback, roll up the spontaneous areas of consensus, make recommendations to our business, let's keep going. And so during that process, people shouldn't be afraid to prove themselves wrong. So your first hypothesis will not be the hypothesis by the end of even the six-week period. Uh, and lastly, you want to include your best people, because this is the hardest thing we're doing as a business. Keep churning out monographs and 90 quid a pop, selling them to libraries who have already bought and have always bought our stuff is easy. 
Well, it's not easy, but it's easier than this. Um, so people who want to be the voice of change, who want to engage with this stuff, develop new skills, who want to collaborate with people they don't know around the business, who want to try a new way of thinking, and who want to become visible, who want to stand there in front of the MD and say, you've got it wrong, you need to do this. Those are the people you want. Those are the people like you, like in however long you've got until you graduate. Like when you go into these publishers and you realise, holy hell, like they're living in 2003. You, you, need to be, you need to be these people, otherwise we are in trouble. And there won't be a publishing master's in 10 years' time, there won't be publishing. Where do you start? It's the hypothesis. So it's X, Y, Z. If we do X, we will see Y outcome, which will lead to Z customer benefit. This is where we start everyone. If they can't encapsulate their idea in this formulation, then they have to start again. And then it lasts six weeks. The reason why I've made it six weeks, much to the uh, annoyance of the people who participate, because they get stressed out, and often, like, every day, they're moaning at me. Um, the reason why I've li li limited it to six weeks is because if it was 12 weeks, and it could well be 12 weeks, it could be 18 weeks, um, it could be six months, it's because they're doing this on top of their day job. And also, I, I am a believer in the fact that um, the task does expand to fit the time. I've had some tasks within uh, workshops, they've given me five minutes, I gave them the same outcomes as if I had half an hour. I'm more stressed out, but I do believe in that. And so I have to be mindful of the fact that they're getting no relief from their day job and they will have targets. Um, and so that is a kindness. It doesn't feel like a kindness to them, but it is. And this will be wrapped up from beginning to end, from nothing to a final presentation in six weeks. Thereafter, it's a much more fluid process. Turning this into something which we can operationalise could take months, if not years. But this initial process, going from nothing to something, should only take six weeks. And that's it. So just to wrap up, um, discoverability based on good metadata is the most concerning and valuable thing in contemporary academic publishing. And that is where publishers can and should be added value to the ecosystem. That's one thing. And the second thing is, because publishing is changing, that isn't necessarily all for the bad, it's just weather, remember. But that doesn't mean that we can't rely on the things we've always done to be successful tomorrow. Uh, and that's why we need things like innovation. He says it's a threat to innovation. Thank you.